Hi and welcome back to the Jubilee Plus podcast. I'm Abby Thomas and today I'm bringing you a seminar from the 2023 Churches That Change Communities Conference. Today we'll be hearing from Andy McCulloch from the Unreached Network and his seminar is called Loving Your International Neighbour. Hey everyone, thanks for coming to our seminar. Yeah, I spilt coffee on my white t-shirt today, so really sorry about that. Um, What can you do? Uh, We are going to today uh, just be asking the question, if you've got an international neighbour, so you've got someone living, you know, in your community, actually next door to you or in your town, in your city, who's come from another nation, how can we best build bridges with them and get to know them and learn from them and engage with them in a Christ-like way? And um, obviously the, the simple answer is love them. So that's it. You can go home and do that. And I think, you know, looking around this room, you guys would be very good at that. Um, But I have to fill a bit more time than that. So um, what we're going to do is we're actually going to be in John chapter four, um, which is a really well-known story of Jesus loving his international neighbor, uh, the the lady from Samaria. And and so you've got a, a few different boundaries that are being crossed in this conversation Uh, You've got uh, an ethnic boundary of a Jewish person talking to a Samaritan person, but you've also got a gender boundary of a man talking to a woman in a culture where that was quite a complex way of relating to someone. And what we're going to do is we're just going to draw a bunch of things out of this story in John chapter 4 that I think will help us. And the reason I always like to do these things from the Bible rather than just kind of give you you know, go and eat food with people, cook with them, look after their kids. You know, you know that stuff. Um, and I think I want us to look at, A, the uniquely cross-cultural or international aspect of loving your neighbor, and B, to make sure that it's uniquely Christian rather than just good intercultural practice, which you could Google or learn from anywhere. And so we're going to look at our Lord Jesus and take some examples from him. Uh, Of course, he is the great culture crosser coming from heaven to earth, which is very different, I can imagine. Um, But also, at the end of John's gospel, he then says to his disciples, as the Father sent me, so do I send you. And so in other words, we can learn from the way that Jesus relates cross-culturally, because he says, just as the Father sent me, in the same way I'm sending you, the things you saw me do, Uh, go and do those things as well. And so we do have this unique opportunity in the UK at the moment of having neighbours from all over the world. And it makes life so... Imagine, right, you lived in England and the only food was English food. Do you know what I mean? And so there's so many things that make our life richer by living in a really international uh, space. And so we have this unique opportunity of loving our international neighbor. So we're going to be in John chapter 4. We're going to pull some things out as we go. And um, uh, let's pray and then off we go. Uh, Heavenly Father, today has been so wonderful to put a day aside to invest in our own development in this area, but also to have you invest in us. We sense your presence in a wonderful way because we know that 
loving people and serving people and caring is so deeply important to you. And we're so grateful to be in this space today. And we're praying now uh, for this last section of the day, uh, for the presence of the Holy Spirit, for the voice of God, for help and confidence and faith to come to each of us in this area of loving our international neighbor. We're asking you, Lord, come and be our teacher, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, off we go. Number one, um, uh, be a guest and be a host and learn how to do both. And so we, we read in verse seven that a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So there he's putting himself in the place of the guest. He's going, I've come into Samaria. This is your space. Please host me. Um, and then we read in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so there's also an aspect of hosting. And both of these are something that Jesus does in his mission. And they're both things that we need to learn how to do really well cross-culturally. Um, learning to be a guest is Christ-like. Um, and learning to be, you know, the one who came and was born in a, in a manger in a little village in the back of the world and was immediately dependent and vulnerable. And learning how to ask for help and learning how to be a, a guest to someone. And if you've got an international neighbor who's, you know, left their country, and, you know, UK has layers of immigration, but let's say we're talking about first-generation people, so people who've moved into the UK within their lifetime. They've, they have left their home, and so now they've come, and they've got a home in the UK, and that becomes really precious because you've lost so much that is home. And so, actually, for someone to have the opportunity to host is enorm enormously empowering, and it gives dignity uh, to people. And so if you're, you know, if you've got neighbors from anywhere east of here, okay, um, you'd be more honoring to them by going and being their guest than by inviting them to your house to be your guest. Because they, they have the opportunity of hosting you and serving you and cooking for you and welcoming you in. And so learning to be a guest well and not robbing people of the power of hosting is really Christ-like. Um, but in the same way, um, learning to be a host at the right times and in the right way is also Christ-like. Hospitality is an aspect of the mission of the church, uh, being open, welcoming, embracing. You know, this is something that the Father is doing all the way through Scripture. And we see Jesus here offering living water. And so knowing how to host, and we're reminded in Hebrews, you know, don't forget to entertain strangers I always think entertain, does that, yeah, have I got to get my guitar out, you know, <laughs> entertain you. But uh, entertaining strangers, because by doing this, some have entertained angels unawares. And uh, to me, what that says, you know, an angel is a messenger from God. And so to me, what that says, yeah, there's a mystery piece in your hospitality, but there's also, you're receiving a message from God as you host someone. So bring them into your home and listen to what they've got to tell you, and you'll learn something about God. So that's the first thing, learn to be a, a, a guest and a host. Secondly, ask this question, what, what, what do they see when they see you? 
So the, the first thing that this woman says when Jesus goes into Samaria and approaches her and says, can I have, uh, please give me a drink. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So th- the, the first thing she says, the first thing she says to Jesus are the things that she notices about him, which is that he's a Jew, uh, so his ethnicity, and that he's a man and she's a woman. So it's like it's right there for her, and it's the first thing that, she, that comes out of her mouth. Um, and um, f- for, for her, I think it's because her ethnicity, you know, Samaritans were so looked down on and marginalized and despised. I think her ethnicity and also her gender are both sources of the, the pain and the marginalization in her story. And so it's right there for her. So it's the first thing she notices and the first thing that she says. Um, I sat down this week with a, a woman who's a friend of mine, uh, but she's a woman who's been through, uh, we've known each other for a long time, but she's been through pain at the hands of men. And I still realize, even when I sit down with her now, that she, when she's talking to me, she's very aware that she's talking to a man. Does it, even though we've been friends for a long time, it's just that's what she sees because of her experiences. Does that make sense? And, um, and so... Uh, Understanding what people see when they see you. Uh, so I'm very involved in the, in the Middle East. Uh, I, I kind of serve churches in different places. For example, if I go to Egypt, um, I'm very aware that, of how Egyptians see English people. Because Britain colonized Egypt. A lot of people got killed when England colonized Egypt. We did it for money because we wanted the Suez Canal. Um, so that piece of our history is shameful for us and painful for them. So I'm very aware that my grandparents were a source of pain to their grandparents. And so if I sit with an Egyptian, I have to be aware of that. What do they see when they see me? They see the colonizer, right? And so I've got, I've got to get past that suspicion. Um, and so it is loving to consider that question when you're sitting with your neighbor. What do they see when they see you? And how can you help get past the suspicion that will be immediate? Okay. And then uh, number three, uh, be more than the world is, not less. So there's a, the, the, the shock in this story culturally is that Jesus chooses to go to Samaria rather than going around it like everyone else. And so just by going there and talking to this woman, Jesus has already surpassed the cultural norms. And the disciples come at the end of the story and they can't believe that he's talking to a Samaritan woman. They're like, oh my goodness, you have blown my mind, Jesus. You know, that's what they say at the end of the story. And, um, but today, moving towards difference might not be so shocking. In fact, you know, it, we live in a, in a culture where in certain places diversity is really celebrated, which is fantastic. Not everywhere. And, um, you know, it can be, it can be trendy for young people, you know, where we live at the moment, all the young people are out on the streets in the Palestine, pro-Palestine demonstrations, and they don't really understand anything, but it's kind of trendy. So they're like, oh, that's where all my mates are going, I'm gonna go as well, seriously, that's what our teenagers are doing at the moment where we are. And, um, and so if everyone else is doing it, it's not uniquely Christian, but the disciples were shocked when they saw what Jesus was doing, because he was doing something that surpassed the cultural norms. And, you know, advocacy and 
uh, helping refugees and moving towards inequality can in some sectors be a really woke thing to do. And so I, I think the question is, if we're going to be beyond the culture, what could you do that would really shock your church in this area? You know, the disciples are shocked, right? Can't believe you're doing that. So what would that be in your space? Like, not just hospitality, but like, I can't believe you're doing that, really? I think there is something shocking about Christ-like radical love of your international neighbour. Number four, uh, don't judge because you're probably wrong. Judging cross-culturally usually gets you into trouble because you do not understand their story or how they got into that space in their life. And the example from this story is very much the kind of the famous, the, 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 the well-received history of interpretation of who this woman is and what her story is. Okay, so verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. So the, the received interpretation of this, which was often written by blokes, and often, you know, recently blokes in the West who don't really understand some of the pressures of this world, is that this woman was some kind of, um, uh, a, you know, she liked getting with lots of different guys. I can't think of a polite way of saying it. Um, you know, and that somehow she'd had lots of different men and now she's with a man that isn't her husband. But just think a moment about the cultural context and the fact that A, marriage in most of the world, including in ancient Palestine, was never about sex. It was always about security. B, um, if she's been with lots of men and now she isn't married, it could have been lots of being widowed because in those days often much older men married much younger women and life expectancy was not high. That's why there were so many widows in society. That's why widows are such a key thing in scripture. Um, C, if she's been divorced numerous times rather than widowed, that would never be at her prerogative because women had no prerogative to divorce, no legal right, only men. So if she's been divorced lots of times, that's, that's not her fault. If she's been widowed lots of times, that's not her fault. And if she's with a man now that she isn't married to, that's not her fault, because the prerogative to marry is male in that culture. So whatever the situation, she's a victim. But our tradition of interpretation has judged her wrongly. And... We often do, reading the Bible is a cross-cultural exercise, and so we've often interpreted passages like this wrongly because we've not understood the culture. Uh, and that's symptomatic, actually, of the way that we sometimes judge people wrongly cross-culturally. So you find someone in a situation and you think, oh, you must be in that situation because of the choices you've made. What you don't realise is that choice is quite a unique privilege that a lot of people don't have. Does that make sense? And so, don't judge because you're probably going to be wrong if you judge cross-culturally, seriously. And yet we're so trained to make 
judgments at a snapshot of someone's life rather than trying to understand the trajectory that got them there. You know, I, I don't. I've occasionally tried going to the gym. And what happens when I go to the gym is all the big muscly guys, they look at me and they go, Cor, you've let yourself go, haven't you? And I think, yeah, if I used to look like you and now I look like this, I've let myself go. But if you know what I used to look like, and you know, so actually you're judging a snapshot rather than a trajectory. And in our, in our assessment of anyone, we need to slow down on our judging. Uh, but particularly cross-culturally, you can see them, but you can't see where they came from. Okay, number five, meaningful dialogue takes time. So John is an artist, he's a poet. He's wait, waited a long time to write his gospel. There were already three. And you think, cool, it must have taken something to go, I think we need another one. <laughs> but he's sat on it for decades. And one of the things that he's done is he's crafted it beautifully. And uh, one of the things that John has done is in the dialogues that Jesus has with individuals, very often the individual will speak seven times, which is the perfect number. And so the woman in this story, she speaks seven times to Jesus. And that happens in lots of the stories in John. And as she speaks seven times and she's in dialogue with him, she goes on a journey in her revelation of who Jesus is. The first thing that she has said is, you know, uh, you're a Jew. So the first, her first observation about Jesus is that he's a Jewish man. And then as the conversation goes on, she calls him a prophet at one point. You know, and as the conversation goes up, she ends up by saying the seventh thing she says about him is, could this be the Christ? And so she goes on a journey during a dialogue with Jesus from not really understanding who he is to understanding a lot more about who he is. And these kind of dialogues, it's beautiful. John does that on purpose because Christians are really good at monologues and not very good at dialogues. I mean, that's what I'm doing right now, right? Um, I'm just monologuing and you lot just have to listen. But, you know, we're good at preaching and even our projects, sometimes our project design is a monologue. This is what we think you need rather than the listening piece, the, the context research piece, the asking the questions of our communities piece. And so this, this di and every dialogue that Jesus has with an individual in John is slightly different. He doesn't have a standard presentation of the gospel because he's responding to people's questions and he's in dialogue with them. And so every presentation that Jesus gives to different individuals in John is different, depending on the questions that they're asking. Does that make sense? And so with this woman, she goes on a journey um, even before she gets to the point of professing faith in Christ. And we know this. We know that people are already on a journey before they believe. But I think it's really clear here, and we can learn a lot from Jesus' sensitive interaction with her. He's responding to her questions. He's letting her lead. He's not always just trying to kind of move her away from things and go, actually, what I want to talk to you about is this. He's answering her questions. And so it's a meaningful dialogue. And that takes time. Number six... We see here a wisdom that, that breaks the binary. What do I mean by that? Well, verse 20 to 23, again, famous passages of Scripture. She says, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 23. But the hour is coming, and it's now here, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So she says, Our fathers, our received tradition as Samaritans is that we should worship on this mountain in Samaria, that God is on this mountain. That's our religion, that's our tradition, that's what we believe, and we've built our kind of life around that. You Jews believe that you should worship God on a mountain in Jerusalem. So who's right and who's wrong? That's her question. It's a really important question to her. You know, either you're right and we're wrong, or we're right and you're wrong. And so often in the world and the questions that we face, things are shipped into these massive binaries. And the problem with that is someone's going to be right and someone's going to be wrong. So if you're trying to build bridges, it's impossible. Because you've basically got to go, either I'm right and you're wrong, or you're right and I'm wrong. And the problem for Christians is we think we're right and they're wrong. And so you can win the argument but lose the friend, which is what we do. What Jesus does here is he says, well, God doesn't live on your mountain and God doesn't live on our mountain. (laughs) But God is spirit and those who worship him should worship in spirit and truth. And so what he says is actually it's not this mountain or that mountain. It's something else. It's another solution from heaven. It's something different that God is doing. He's able to say, you're wrong, but he's also able to say we're wrong. Do you understand? And, and, and there are so many things in our world where you have to pick a side. And we're always being asked to pick sides. And we're always being forced to pick sides. And if you look at Jesus over and over again, they make a trap. You know, is it, is it Caesar or is it God? And Jesus, he's got a different answer, right? Is it this or is it that? Jesus has got a different answer. And so the, the wisdom that comes from heaven, one of the things that it does is it offers a creative solution that you didn't see before that breaks the binary. And Jesus does that here. You see, otherwise what happens is the kind of classic cross-cultural missionary mistake, which is, well, I'm the changer because I come from a world that's right and you need changing. And, and actually, to be able to go, actually, the tradition I've received is wrong. The tradition that you've received is wrong. But God's doing something wonderful. Let's see what he's doing. It takes a huge amount of humility. And so we're not just changer, we're also changee. And we see that all the way through the Bible. You know, Jonah thinks that he's going to Nineveh to save Nineveh, but actually he's going to Nineveh to save Jonah. And so often it's like that. You know, I spent seven years living in Istanbul. I don't think we really changed anything in Istanbul. You know, it's an ancient city with a huge history. What are we going to do? We felt like we made a little scratch, you know. But, but God did a huge amount in changing us. And so we're changee, not just changer. Number seven. 
entrust the most precious gems to the most unlikely people. So there's a couple of unique and extraordinary revelation moments that we get from Jesus that he gives to this woman of Samaria. And then we have the privilege of, of listening in. So he entrusts incredible revelation about God and about himself to this most unlikely of people. And um, we've just seen that this famous verse, the Father is seeking worshippers. God is worshipped in spirit and truth. You know, how many, how many times do you hear, oh, we worship in spirit and truth in your church, right? But Jesus entrusted this beautiful revelation to this unlikely person, not to a priest in a temple. And um, uh, later in the passage, in verse 26, He, Jesus, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I am. And we lose it a little bit in the English translation. But he takes here into his words the, the I am name of God from Exodus. You know, who should we say sent us? I am. And in John, you know, there's seven times when there's an I am the, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. There's seven of them in John. Uh, but there's also seven absolute I am statements in John. You know, before Abraham was, I am. In the Garden of Gethsemane, who are you looking for? I am. And he does it here for the first time. First one of the seven in John is here to this woman. So he entrusts the most precious gems of revelation to this most unlikely of people. And that's really important for us to think about in our cross-cultural relationships. Um, on my son's football team, uh, there's a boy who last year, he kept kicking people, swearing at people, getting sent off every game. <laughs> and the coach came up with this genius. He must have read it in a coaching manual somewhere. He's like, I'm going to take that boy and make him captain next season so that's what he's done you know they kind of say that to teachers don't they take the naughtiest kid in the class and give them a responsibility and so that's what they've done and this season it's completely different and I would say that's what we understand by the grace of God giving the most precious thing to the most undeserving of people and that's what Jesus does here and if we can figure out how to do that in our cross-cultural love of neighbors I think it will really help us number eight um, I'm literally just pinging. I hope that's okay. Um, be humble towards history. I alluded to this earlier. And I'm, you know, in all of this, I'm not saying become an expert in all these things. That's a lot of things to think about. Uh, you know, I said right at the beginning, actually just love people. Uh, but now I've got to fill time. <laughs> um, I, be humble towards history. Uh, the individual that you're talking to is not a decontextualized individual. They are an individual made in the image of God, but we English so think individualistically about the world. If I'm in the Middle East and someone says to me, who are you? What they want to know is, who is your dad? Who is your granddad? What is your home village? You know, like, where are you from? What's your story? What's your heritage? What's your... That's what they mean by who are you. It's like, what is the tree that this fruit is growing on, okay? And um, uh, a guy called Fritz Kling wrote a, a great little book 
called Meeting of the Waters. I, I recommend it. He's an American pastor. He said, I'm going to travel the world and just listen to the global church for a couple of years and just see what some of the themes are. So he did a listening tour for a couple of years. And um, well, yeah, I wish I could afford to do that. <laughs> Go listen to the church in Barbados. Um, they said, relax. <laughs> um, it's called A Meeting of the Waters by Fritz Kling. And, um, but one of the things that he says, one of the big themes is this idea of memory and the fact that memory, in other words, history, where, where we came from and who we are now and post-colonialism and it, the, the pain that's been done by people's parents to people's parents is a really important part of the world. And if you're English, you've got to be aware of the part that the British pay, played in some of the pain and dysfunction that's in the world today. You know, don't get me started on Israel, Gaza, but we could blame the British and the Balfour Declaration 106 years ago, right? And so we have to stand up to some of these things. And Jesus, in this thing here, he engages with this woman's history, I think. And so, again, back to verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband because you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, so I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, the, the questions that she's been asking are about you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and which mountain is it? Is it our mountain or your mountain? And so... Is this just a random word of knowledge from Jesus about this woman's sexual history? Or is it, as many commentators are starting to point out, that, that actually Jesus is talking about uh, Samaria's history of colonization? So Samaria from 700 BC and to this point has had five different imperial overlords, empires that have come through and conquered and oppressed and hurt people. And the people that they have at this point, the Romans, um, are also engaged in that practice. And so is it that actually Jesus isn't talking about this individual story at all? He's talking about her nation and their history. And he's saying, I understand that your people for generations have had external empires come and steal and pillage and crush and destroy. I understand the story that your people have been through. And is that why she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet? Um, not because of a word of knowledge about her sex life, but because of a prophetic understanding of the heart of God towards her people's place in history. And so sometimes when we are sitting with an individual, we do need to think about the fact that their family or their grandparents have been through some enormous national trauma perhaps and that's perhaps why they're in the UK now and we need to think about the fact that when when communities have been through those kind of national traumas it can take generations really for that pain to get worked through and we need to think about that's I think that's what Jesus is doing with this woman here and I think he's showing an extraordinary love to someone cross-culturally by saying I'm listening to your national story and I'm perceiving that the first thing you said when you saw me was you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan because it's right here in your consciousness. And I want to listen and I want to care. Number nine, uh, just a few left. Jesus will show himself 
in relevant ways. So I said, Jesus said to her, I am. And he's revealed himself as the I am, which is one of God's names from Exodus. Now, the Samaritans, they, they, in their religion, their kind of slimmed down version of, Christian, of Judaism, they only held the first five books of the Bible, the, the, the Pentateuch. And so Jesus has taken a name for God from those first five books that they receive as authoritative and he's used that to declare God to her. So he's found a, a place of common ground between her belief and his belief and used that to demonstrate God to her. And I, so, for example, if you're uh, talking about God with a Muslim, don't start on one of the really controversial things that are difficult for Muslims, like Jesus is the son of God. That's really hard for Muslims. We'll have to get there, but don't start there. Start with something that you've got in common, like God is merciful or God made the world, you know, or the prophets, Abraham. So start with one of the things that you've got in common to build bridges and trust rather than starting in a really controversial place. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Uh, number 10, behind every individual is a community. Obviously, wonderfully in this, verse 28, the woman left her water jar and she went away into town and she said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then in verse 39, we read, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So there's this one person that Jesus wins she goes into her community, which again shows that she wasn't a socially ostracized person like some people read it, because the community probably wouldn't have listened to her. Um, goes into her community, and through this one individual, you have a whole community that comes to Christ. And I want to encourage you that so often this is what we're seeing. Um, I was chatting to an Iranian woman the other day. Obviously, all over the world, Iranians are getting saved at the moment. I mean, you... You can preach to an Iranian and Swedish and they'll get saved and they don't even speak Swedish. It's, there's just a, a move of God. If you've got Iranians in your town, go and talk to them. They'll, get, they'll come to faith. It's something God is doing. Um, I was talking to a, an Iranian woman the other day and people were sharing their stories. And she was really small and really quiet. And I said to her, she's from the south of Iran. I said to her, what's your story? Like, what's your story, my sister? And she said... Um, well, I came to faith, I was the first person in my family, and then I went and told my family, and, and they came to faith as well. I said, that's amazing, how many people in your family? She said, 200. <laughs> so firstly, that's a really big family, um, but just extraordinary. But these are some of the things that we are seeing in these days. You know, in communities that are so strongly connected as families, that often you're seeing whole communities come to faith, and we must expect that. And rather than just extracting an individual and turning them into an English Christian, sometimes it's better to try and leave them embedded in their community. So I've made friends with a Kurdish kebab shop owner in Reading. Um, and I keep having to visit him to carry on our dialogue. So <laughs> I keep having to eat kebabs. It's for Jesus. I should claim it on expenses or something, shouldn't I? And, um, but he said to me, I want to become a Christian. And I think the worst thing I could do right now is to invite him into my church and turn him into an, an English Christian. I think 
much better, and I'm a pastor, right? <laughs> That's what I'm supposed to be doing. Much better if we can keep him embedded in his family. From his village back in Turkey, in Reading, there are 700 families. Just from his village. So behind this guy, there's a community. And if we can see one of his uncles and one of his cousins and one of his aunts, you know, and one of the things we've learned serving Muslims is don't ever baptize an individual Muslim on their own. If you can, wait until you've got a, a natural support network for them and baptize them together because then they can look out for each other, they can sustain. And so behind an individual is a community. And um, the final thing I want to say uh, is this, that... Um, your church actually needs the perspective of your international neighbor. So they can be a gift to your church. They will change your church in a good way. And so here again, what we see in verse 42. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. So we've got this incredible phrase about Jesus that we use all the time in our churches, it's in our songs, it's in our Christmas. He's the savior of the world. We got that from the mouths of these brand new Samaritan believers. They gave it to us. Why is that? Because if Jesus was only sharing the gospel with Jews, they would never get to the savior of the world. They would only get to the savior of Jews. Uh, it's like American sports where you know, you're the world champion, but you've actually, you know, the World Series of Baseball is only against American teams. So if you want to be the actual world champion, you need to travel, <laughs> right? And in the same way here, as soon as the gospel has crossed a boundary, people's revelation is different because they're looking from a different place. And so savior of the world is a gift to us. And as you love your international neighbor and see people, relationships built, bridges built, and people come to Christ, um, they will bring gifts to you. Things that you never could have seen about Jesus, but they can see it. And so they'll add something wonderful to you. So what we've, what we've looked at is 11 things there uh, from this story. And I know it's a lot, and you need to go home and digest it, and that's fine. Uh, but the simple thing is love people, and you know how to do that. You know how to love people. Listen, eat, slow down, conversation, appreciate, respect, learn, love people, and God will do wonderful things. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much to Andy McCulloch. And you can find out more about his work at the Unreached Network via the link in the show notes, which are attached to this episode of the podcast. We hope you're really enjoying this content from the Jubilee Plus Churches That Change Communities conference. Do check out the Jubilee Plus website to find out more ways to be resourced on your journey with Jesus. And join us next time for another fantastic seminar.